Thank you so much for joining us today at our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in five different locations. And our goal is to help you on your spiritual journey to know God, find freedom, discover purpose, and make a difference in the lives around you. If you'd like to learn more about our Savior's Church or how to get involved, visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We've been in this series entitled The Book of Acts, and we've been talking about the history of the church and what the church was like when it first began, but also the goal in this has been to help you see yourselves in the church. Because in seeing what the church was like originally, we can see what the church is supposed to be like today. But not only the church, you, we're going to see individuals throughout this book that you'll will be challenged to say, God, that's me, or I'm called to do that, or I never knew that. And so we're, I, I'm very much enjoying this series, and I hope you are as well. And uh, I want to jump right back into it for the sake of time. But we are in Acts chapter 8. But before we read that, I want to go back to Acts chapter 1 for a moment. Because in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, this is, Jesus has died on the cross, he's, he's resurrected from the dead, and he's meeting with his disciples. And he tells them, here is your mission. Here is what I'm telling you to do. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I'm going to empower you to fulfill this mission. But make no mistake about it, this is your mission. And this is what he tells them. Acts chapter 1 verse 8, he says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This was his command. Take this gospel, take this message, take it to Jerusalem where you don't want to go back to because it's where I was just killed and we were, we were persecuted there, but go back there. And then he says, go to Judea, which Jerusalem was in Judea. And so he says, basically spread the message around Judea. Then he says, go to Samaria, and we'll get to that. And then he says, from there, take it to the ends of the earth. This was the great commission that he was giving his followers. Take this message that you have and bring it to the world. Last week, we looked at the life of Stephen, and we titled that message, The the Portrait of a Martyr. He was a man who was so sold out for his witness to Jesus that he was willing to lay his life down for that, and he did. He died because he was a witness for Christ, and he was uncompromising and unashamed about the fact that Jesus Christ was Lord, that Jesus Christ was Messiah. And so Stephen, we saw in in last week how Stephen was bringing the message to these Greek-speaking Jews, these Hellenistic Jews, meaning these Jewish people, and I won't go too much into it because we talked about it for the last couple weeks, but these, these Jewish people who weren't like culturally Jewish, they were culturally Greek, but they had come back around to Jerusalem speaking the Greek language that is so pervasively um, just spread throughout the world at that time. And we saw that he was killed. And we were also introduced to a very important character that's going to come up a lot next week. Um, but a man who stood there while he was being stoned, while Stephen was being stoned to death, a man by the name of Saul. Everybody say Saul. This week we're going to take a look at another important man in the Bible. A man in Acts chapter 8 whose name was Philip. And the title of my message this week is Philip, Lessons from the Evangelist. Lessons from the Evangelist. 
We learn from Stephen's life, but I want us to learn from the life of Philip. I want us to hopefully see ourselves in Philip or see what God can use us for in a life of Philip or what God may be calling some of you to step into that maybe you've been a little nervous and a little timid to step into. Acts chapter 8, verse 1, this is what it says. Stephen just died. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Saul was one of the witnesses of Stephen's death, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. Some people would even go as far as to say that not only was Saul there, but because Saul was standing there as they were dropping off their coats, going to kill this man named Stephen, that Saul actually instigated the death of Stephen, that he was kind of the ringleader at that time. And if you're wondering who Saul is, he would later be known in the Bible as Paul, the apostle, but we'll get to that. Some say he instigated that. Let's continue. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning, but Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. So we see the birth of the church, we see this glorious thing, everybody starts joining their heaven. You know, one message, 3,000 people get saved, they preach another message, and 5,000 men alone get saved, not counting women and children. We see this explosive growth in the church, but then we see this major persecution happen. And when this persecution happens, the believers scatter, they leave. But what's interesting is, where did they go? Judea and Samaria. When they were persecuted they, and they scattered, they ended up going to the very places that Jesus told them they were supposed to go from the beginning. They were persecuted. And that looked like a bad thing, but it was actually God's perfect will for them to spread the message to the world. How I many you know sometimes we don't like to move until we're uncomfortable? We don't like to do certain things until we don't feel like it's comfortable to stay where we're at. That's what happened with the disciples. That's what happened with the followers of Jesus at this time. This great wave of persecution began. Now, remember, up until this time, the believers had great favor with the Jewish people. They loved, that they, were, they so admired these Christians because they were zealous, they were pious, they loved God, they were sold out, they were helping one another, they were sacrificing for one another. And yes, you had religious leaders that didn't like them, but by and large, the Bible says that they were very well respected by the people, even though the people didn't join them until this moment happened. When Stephen was killed, when Stephen was persecuted, it launched this, this rage of persecution against the church in Jerusalem. But again, God was in it. God used this persecution to get them to obey him. And he used this to scatter the message to the world. I want you to know something, church. God can take what looks bad today and turn it into his perfect will for your life later. A lot of times we, we think, well, God, this is, this is horrible. I can't believe this is happening. But then when you look back on it five years later, 10 years later, 20 years later, you go, that was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
It's the best thing that ever happened. Why? Because we have limited perspective. We have limited view. We live in the now, but this is what the Bible says about about Jesus, that he is the alpha and he's the omega. That means he's the beginning and he's the end. See, God was in the beginning. God is with you in the present, but God is also already at your end, so trust him. And I don't know what you're facing today. I don't know what's going on in your life today, but trust me when I tell you this. Jesus is with you now, and he's already at your end. You can trust him. You can trust him. The Bible says that he works all things out for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. It may not look good now, but he's not done. If it's not good right now, it's because he's not done with it. God can take what we don't understand. I think about 2020, and I know some of us would like to go, okay, I don't want to think about 2020. I hope 2020 is not happening again right now. I don't want to even think about that. But for many of us, 2020, we look back on it, and it was rough, it was hard, it was hurtful. But if we really look at it through God's eyes, it was one of the best things that ever happened to us. One of the best things. Some of you are serving God right now because of 2020. Some of you are faithful to Jesus right now because of 2020. Some of you are closer now than you've ever been. Maybe you were a Christian before that, but you really grabbed the hold of God's promises and his plan for your life because of that. Why? Because God can take what's bad and turn it out for your good. That's what he can do. He's God. But again, we see Saul going from place to place and he's trying to destroy the church. He's literally going into people's houses, dragging them out of their houses because they're Christians for no other reason other than they're Christians and putting them in prison. That's what's happening. Verse four, but the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. Let me stop there for a moment. When you know that God is with you, it doesn't matter what people do to you. You're resilient. You're going to keep obeying anyway. They come after them. Some of them have probably lost family members, family members in prison, family members who were killed. And they get forced away from their homes. And you would think, they go, well, I'm not doing this whole God thing. Look at what happened. No, no, no. They got persecuted and they kept preaching. They spread it everywhere that they went. They were resilient. They knew what their calling was. And they knew who their God was. Verse 5, Philip, for example, went to the city of Samaria and told the people there about the Messiah. Crowds listened intently to Philip because they were eager to to hear his message and see the miraculous signs he did. Many evil spirits were cast out, screaming as they left their victims, and many who had been paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was great joy in that city. Now, we're going we're gonna to unpack. There's a whole lot here, and we don't have time to di- dive into all of it. But we're going to unpack some pretty important things about, Stephen, I mean, about Philip's life, excuse me. But I'll just tell you, I like Philip. There's something about Philip that just endears me to him. And I'll tell you the main reason I like Philip. Apart from him obeying God and his calling, Philip was a girl dad. <laughs> the Bible later on tells us that Philip had four daughters. Your pastor can relate to that. <laughs> I asked God for two boys, and he said, I'll do one even better. I'll give you three girls. <laughs> Pray for your pastor. All right. 
No, I mean that. See, seriously, please pray for your pastor. I've got three daughters. You know how expensive that's going to be? But I want us to learn from Philip's life. And again, lessons from an evangelist, from the evangelist. I want you to take these notes if you are. Number one, he was well-respected and full of the spirit and wisdom. I won't stay here very long because we talked about that last week in Stephen's life. Philip was one of the seven men that were chosen, along with Stephen, to serve widows. Again, there was a complaint with the Greek-speaking widows, complaining that they weren't getting the same amount of food in the daily distribution that the, that the Hebrew-speaking widows were. So the apostles said, give us seven men that are well-respected and who are full of the spirit and wisdom. And Philip was one of those men, just like Stephen was. So in that, that tells us he was a servant. He had a humble heart, the same way that Stephen did. Many of the things that could be said of Stephen could also be said of Philip. But number two, he was an evangelist. He was an evangelist. And I want you to get this, I want you to get the Bible's perspective or the Bible's picture of what an evangelist is. Because in today's day and age, when we hear the term evangelist, we think that guy on TV. Or we think that late night preacher from Missouri. Or we, whatever it is you picture in your mind. This is what the Bible says about an evangelist. What is an evangelist? Well, first, this is what the Bible says. It calls Philip an evangelist later in Acts chapter 21, verse 8. It says this. The next day we went on, this is the Apostle Paul, we went on to Samaria and stayed at the home of Philip the evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. It's talking about Philip. So what is an evangelist? J. Rodman Williams says this. Evangelists are those who proclaim the gospel. They proclaim it, they speak it, they call it out, they, they preach to people. And he goes on to say evangelism, the action that these evangelists do, evangelism, as Philip demonstrated it, involves both proclaiming the gospel and bringing people to a saving faith. That's what evangelists do. They bring people to faith in Jesus. They preach to people and not just in church buildings. They preach outside of the church. They bring people to Christ outside of the four walls of the church. And this word evangelism comes from the Greek word euangelion, which means good news, or evangelion, depending on how you want to say it. It simply means good news. The evangelism, gospel, good news. Are y'all with me so far? So gospel is not just a, a genre of music. It means this is good news. So an evangelist is a person who preaches the good news and someone who brings people to saving faith. Now, I want you to know something, church. Look up here. Don't miss this. All of us as Christians are called to evangelize. The Bible tells us to do the work of an evangelist. Even if you are not, quote, unquote, an evangelist, as a Christian, you are called to do the work of in evangelism. And I'm a, I'm a pastor, but I'm also a Christian. So that means I don't preach just because I'm a pastor. I preach because I'm a Christian. And I'm not just called to preach inside of these four walls. I'm called to preach outside of it. That's the truth. But so are you. So are you. The Bible tells us to do the work of an evangelist. And so this, this calling that we have is for us to, to preach to those outside. Listen, I have, I have friends that aren't Christians, 
And my sole purpose for friendship with them is to bring them to a relationship with Jesus. And I know sometimes we need a break. Some of us, we're just coming out of the, a life of sin. We need some time to not go back around our friends if they're more influential to us than we are to them. I totally get that. But as a believer, you should not be so siloed off that, you, that lost people are like yucky gross. Because you're called to them. You call to preach to them. As a matter of fact, I was leaving church just this week, and I got a phone call from a, a very prominent businessman in our community who is not a believer. He is not a Christian. And he called me because he was having um, potentially this procedure done. And when he called me, I've been talking to this guy, I've been in relationship with this guy, and I've been waiting for the right moment to just to, to, to throw the line, right? Well, he called me and he said, I'm going in for this procedure, and I knew in that moment now, take the opportunity, take the moment. And I'm just going to be honest with you as your pastor. I wasn't expecting it. My mind was completely somewhere else, but I knew that that was my moment. So I wasn't prepared. I didn't have a plan. I didn't read a book to him. I'd be like, okay, here's a track. Go read this. In that moment, I had to tell him about being born again. I asked him, where's your relationship with God? And he said, I, I, I'm trying to get there. I said, listen, that's a good place. But this is what Jesus says about being born again. See, we're called to preach the gospel in season and out. And God will give you opportunities to share the gospel with people everywhere that you go. You have a sphere of influence that I don't have. And the reason you have that sphere of influence is to spread this message and to spread this gospel. We are all called to that. Whether you have pastor in front of your name or evangelist in front of your name, if you have Christian in front of your name, you are called to be an evangelist. Are y'all with me this morning? And we even tee it up for you. I wish I had one with me, but I've been talking to you guys about these little QR codes that we have. We have these little cards now. You can pick one up in the foyer, and it's just our messages. If you thought, I don't know what to say, pastor, I want to invite them to church. You can do that, but you can also give them one of those QR codes that we've been talking. It's just a card with the code. Whether they take a picture with it or they, they scan it with their camera, it'll instantly take them to the link of message series that we've done that talk about the gospel, to talk about the foundations of the faith. I encourage you, grab that. If you don't know what to say, grab a card, give it to them, and let them hear the gospel, but do the work of an evangelist. Now, though we are all called to do that work, there are certain people who have a unique gift of being an evangelist. They have a calling to physically be in the office of an evangelist, and they just have a way with people. How many of you have those family members that you know they're, they're trying to sell you on something, but you just bite anyway? They typically end up, I don't know, selling insurance or cars or something like that, which is good because they're influential. And they can use their words well. But there's certain people who have that, but a redeemed version of that for Jesus. And when they go into a place, their sole focus is everybody here is going to get saved. And I'm going to tell everybody about it. They're evangelists. And that's what Philip was. Philip went to Samaria and he began preaching about Jesus. Now, let me tell you something about Samaria. Samaria was not a place that you go through the Jewish person, they avoided going to Samaria. 
It's not like I have to go through Samaria to get to my next destination. They went out of their way to go away from Samaria. And I don't mean this in a bad way, but Samaria, and I'll explain what I mean in a moment. Geographically, Samaria was kind of like Catahoula. Track with me. You don't go through Catahoula. You go to Catahoula. Am I right? See, I'm not making fun of Catahoula. I actually look for a house in Catahoula. I'm not... But in Catahoula, like, there, you don't go through Catahoula because you're on your way somewhere. You go to it with the intention of going to it. That's what Samaria was like. I'm going, you don't happen to go through Samaria. The Jewish people avoided going to Samaria. They went around Samaria. But yet Philip went right to Samaria. Why? Because the call of Jesus was to bring the gospel to them. Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria. Now, Samaritans, the people from Samaria, they were despised by the Jewish people. And I won't go into that because we preached about it many, many times. But they were despised because they were half-breeds and they didn't believe everything the same way that the Jewish people did. So think about it like this. If, if the Greek-speaking Jews were like, like I've said before, the Baton Rouge Cajuns, right, then that would make the Samaritans like people from Beaumont, It's okay to laugh and be feel this way because I know that you do. Because you've all driven down I-10 and you see a sign for Beaumont and it says gumbo or it says Boudin and you just go, no hesitation, that's a lie. <laughs> you will not catch me buying Boudin in Beaumont, Texas. Who knows what they, they have all hot dogs in their gumbo. Who knows what they put in <laughs> But the way, that, the way that we feel in Acadiana about that, that's it's kind of a picture of what the Jewish people felt about the Samaritans. They're not really us. They're half breeds. They're not with us. And so they even, even these early Christians had strong feelings against the Samaritans until God sent Philip to Samaria. Here's the third thing you need to know about Philip's life. Philip was faithful. He was faithful. He wasn't an apostle. He didn't even have a title. He was chosen to serve tables. But yet we see this man who was called to serve tables doing incredible things for God, used by God to bust whole cities wide open for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because there's something to be said for faithfulness. There's something to be said for simply being faithful to what God asks you to do. And I get around these young pastors who just beginning in ministry, have been in ministry, and they have these dreams of grandeur, and I'm going to be this, and I'm going to be that, and they forget that I'm, you're called to serve the people of God. You are called to be faithful. If you're given something small, be faithful to that small thing until God gives you something great. And that's what Philip did. Philip was faithful to serve those meals to those complaining women who did not think they were getting enough food. He was faithful to it. And look at how God used them. He was faithful to that. And you can't earn God's power. You can't earn being used by God. We'll discover that later on in this very chapter. 
But then, again, there's something to be said for faithfulness. Listen, I remember when I was 19 years old, I went away to college. I was at Southeastern in Hammond. And I, I'd heard about this guy preaching in public schools. And I was young and zealous. And I was like, I, I got a message. I didn't even know what I was going to say. But I got a message that these kids in these public schools need to hear. So I went to the guy leading this campus ministry. He was an evangelist to the public school system, and he was preaching Jesus to these schools. And we were seeing kids getting saved, and it was incredible. But I went to this guy, and I said, hey, can, will you let me preach? And he said, sure. And he let me come in, and I preached. And then he didn't let me preach again for two years. <laughs> I kid you not. But that man let me serve alongside him as he evangelized those schools. And for two years, all I did was hand out pizza and napkins to kids and move equipment. And I was faithful to that. And it was my ministry. And I did it faithfully. To the point where there was a moment he had to sit me down and say, listen, you need a job. You're not paying your bills. Your first responsibility is to be a man. I'm like, okay, got it. But I was faithful. Every day he was there, I was there. Ask me how much I got paid to do it. Nothing. Nothing. I served faithfully. As a matter of fact, I stayed with that man for four to five years. Even I, some, I, He eventually gave me the opportunity to preach again. But while I was with him, I was watching how he preached. I was watching how he interacted with school administrators. I was watching how he interacted with, with those kids that were lost and those Christian kids and those you. And he was discipling me while I was being faithful to what God called me to do, which was to simply serve. And as a matter of fact, when he planted a church, he asked me to come with him and be his youth pastor. He gave me my very first ministry, full-time ministry opportunity. That door came through him. What am I saying? Be faithful with what God has given you. Serve where he's called you to. And if you're going to serve, be faithful to serving. If you say you're going to be there, then you better be there. If you say I'm going to show up and people are depending on you, then you need to be faithful to your word. What are you doing? You're being faithful. Why? Because it's not that people are watching you. God is watching your faithfulness. God is saying, if I can trust you with this, I'll trust you with something more because you were faithful with the small. Some of us want to be wealthy one day, and it's not, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But you're not faithful with your finances now. So why would God trust you with more? Am I preaching to the right people? I'm just making sure. For those of you that didn't clap, 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 that means yes, I am preaching to the right people. Being faithful to what God has called you to. Philip served widows and he was faithful to it and then God used him in a powerful way, which leads me to the fourth characteristic. He was full of the power of God. This man who once served tables was now preaching boldly, casting out devils, doing miraculous signs and wonders. And God was authenticating and proving the message of the gospel through him with signs and wonders and miracles to a people who very much were on the edge of, I don't know about this whole Messiah thing. We are expecting him. And then Philip came proving that this was true. Verse 9 says this. 
Because this power that he was displaying led to some challenges. Verse 9, a man named Simon who had been a sorcerer there for many years, amazing the people of Samaria and claiming to be someone great. Everyone from the least to the greatest often spoke of him as the great one, the power of God. They listened closely to him because for a long time he had astounded them with his magic. This man, Simon, was the exact opposite of Philip. Philip served God and served people. Simon served himself. And he wanted everybody to think that he was somebody great. Now, this Simon is not Simon Peter. This is a different Simon. This is a Simon in Samaria. This was Simon the sorcerer, and some translations call him Simon Magus or Simon the magician. He was thought of as this great magical man. He had so deceived the people in Samaria at that time that they called him the power of God. Simon Magus, and Magus magic, again, was like the magi who came to visit Jesus. They, they, they dabbled in astronomy or astrology, and they, all, they dabbled in all of these different magical, mystical types of things to the point where he had deceived this whole group of people into believing that he was someone special until the truth came around. And they got to see the true power of God in this man named Philip. Now, church history goes on to tell us that this man, Simon, his fame went all the way to Rome, where they erected a statue for Simon Magus in Rome. So Simon in his day was a big deal, but it was based on deception. It was trickery. It's the same thing we see with people on TV today, deceiving people, tricking people. There are demonic powers out there, but those demonic powers are at the feet of Jesus' power. This man was all about himself. And for those of you who who like church history and stuff like that, we can talk about that because I love that stuff. But this man, church historians believe that he was one of the first Gnostics, which was a, a heresy that came into the church, dividing the church, where people believed they had some secret kind of knowledge that no other Christian had. We have, we're, Gnostic means to, like a knowledge, I know this. We have the secret, sound familiar? Or you have these secret organizations that you have these secret codes that you talk to one another about that nobody else knows. We have men in this church who've come out of bondage and stuff like that. And this man, Simon, is thought to be one of the originators of this. He was all about himself. But again, ministry is never about you. It's always about honoring God and serving people. Acts chapter 8, verse 12 says this, but now the people believe Philip's message of good news concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. As a result, many men and women were baptized. Then Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he began following Philip wherever he went. That's very important. And he was amazed by the signs and great miracles that Philip performed. Truth came People started getting saved. People started getting, they started becoming believers and getting baptized. But let me tell you something I tell you all the time about baptism. And we have a baptism coming up. Sign up for it. But let me tell you something I tell you all the time. You can go into the water a sinner and come up a wet sinner. (laughs) Baptism does not save you. Being born again 
trusting in Jesus, making Jesus the Lord of your life saves you. The act of baptism and even the act of believing in Jesus does not save you because the devil and his demons believe in Jesus. That's not what saves them. It's when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives that save us. Not just Savior, Lord. Lord. Number five, what are we learning about Philip? He knew his role and he needed others. He knew his role and he needed others. Let me tell you, church, one of the most dangerous places to be is not when things are going bad. It's when things are going good. One of the most dangerous places you can be is when you're successful, when God is using you, where things seem to be going well for you. It's not the hard times that test us. It's the good times that test us. When times are hard, what do we do? We band together. We depend on one another. We trust God. We pray more when times are hard. When things are good, I don't need to go to church this week. I don't need to watch the message online this week or listen to the podcast. I'm good. I'll, I'll skip small group. I know I, was, I missed my prayer time this morning. It's okay. When things are going good, that's the true test of what we're really depending on. Were we really depending on God or were we just hoping and waiting for the season to change so things could get better? That's the real test. See, Philip went into this city. I want you to think about this. Philip is going into the city. He's persecuted. He's scattered. He goes into Samaria. He starts preaching. People start getting saved. God starts using him. He's doing miracles, signs, and wonders, and everything is great. But then the apostles show up. And Philip could have easily said, I'm over here struggling. Because remember, all the apostles stayed in Jerusalem. I'm over here doing all the work. And my boss is over there. Relax, how many of you ever said that? My staff better not raise their hand. How many of you ever said that? I'm over here doing everything. And those apostles are going to, they're sitting up in Jerusalem, probably drinking chai tea lattes. I'm over here working, doing this thing. And then they have the audacity to want to come and, and visit what I'm doing. Are you kidding me? But Philip knew his role. Philip knew that he needed them. Because God places spiritual authority in our lives for a reason. God places authority in our lives for a reason. Make no mistake about it, there's a very concerted attack against spiritual authority and authority in our world right now. And I'm not saying that there aren't bad authority figures and they're not bad spiritual authority figures because I promise you that there are both. And truth needs to be spoken to both. But God himself instituted that. And if you try to overturn that, you are turning against something that God himself made. God instituted authority for a reason, whether we like it or not. God put spiritual authority in our lives. And one of the reasons why he does that is because they can see things in us that we don't see for ourselves. They can see things that we are completely blind to. That's why we need people. That's why we need one another. That's why you need a small group leader or you need someone discipling you. That's why you need pastors. Because sometimes we can see things that, with your limited perspective, you can't see. 
If you're looking for a spouse in here, you better get other people's eyes on them. I'm not telling you that you need my approval to marry them. All I'm saying is you better have someone who loves Jesus get their eyes on them and tell you whether or not you're making the greatest mistake of your life. I just, I, I just love him. I don't know why people don't see the best in him because we see all the wrong in him. And not only do we see now, we see 20 years from now when you're stuck and you're, he's pulled you away from Jesus and now you're somewhere hurting and you feel all alone because you never let someone tell you the truth. And we all understand that, but all of that, that's true for us as well. Men, that is true for you when you're getting ready to make one of the greatest mistakes of your life and other men get around you and say, what in the world are you doing? We need authority in our life. We need spiritual authority in our life. We need people who can tell us the truth. We're in a very bad place when we think that we don't need anyone to tell us anything. As a matter of fact, when we get to the place where we feel like no one can tell us anything, let me tell you what the Bible calls you, a fool. And I'm not saying that. That is Scripture. That is Scripture. Proverbs tells us that. A very interesting point here is that we see the apostles coming to kind of inspect what's going on. And the apostles come and they start praying for people and people are getting filled with the Holy Spirit. Now notice, Philip was there doing miracles, but as he was praying for people, none of them were getting filled with the Holy Spirit until the apostles come. Peter and John come and they start praying and laying hands and then people start getting filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because Simon had, I mean, excuse me, Philip had his role, but the apostles had theirs. They had their role as well. And not only that, the apostles exposed something that Philip potentially didn't even see. Verse 18, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given, when the apostles laid their hands on people, he offered them money to buy their power. Let me have this power too, he exclaimed, so that when I lay my hands on people, they will receive the Holy Spirit. Simon sees the power, he sees the prestige, quote unquote, he sees God, all of these people being touched by God, by what, the, the, what Peter and John are doing, and he says, let me buy that. Let me buy that. But they saw the wickedness in Simon's heart. That was the moment that he exposed his heart. What was really in there was a desire for power. And there's a term that some of you may have heard of, and you can look it up in the dictionary. It's called simony. That word simony, if you look it up, it, it's, it's a term that basically comes from this man's life. And it's when people try to pay for positions in the church. It's when people try to buy things, and they try to buy influence in the house of God. And let me be very clear, the Bible calls that wicked and evil. And there are some people in the church who you're called to be great givers and you have the means to do it. God has blessed you. Thank God for you. That is a spiritual gift God has given you. But if you ever think that your money can buy you influence in a church, that is wicked. And you need to repent. And you need to repent. 
because we don't buy this. Listen, let me just, let me frame something for you. When you give, you don't give to me. You don't give necessarily even to the church. You give to God through the church. And God rewards you and blesses you for that. I know this is hard truth, but church, I, I just, I want you to see who we're called to be. And I don't want any of us to fall into this trap of thinking that we can influence with our means or even with our serving. I show up every week to serve the church. Were you doing this for me or were you doing this for Jesus? This is, I love how Peter's response. Peter was raw. Peter just was that guy. Peter was the guy who, like, you just, you don't really want to make him mad. People died last time. I mean, it's not a good thing. Acts chapter 8, verse 20. But Peter replied, may your money be destroyed with you for thinking God's gift can be bought. You can have no part in this, for your heart is not right with God. Repent of your wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive your evil thoughts. For I can see that you are full of bitter jealousy and are held captive by sin. Can I tell you the truth? That's just a, that's a very nice translation of what Peter actually said. Because what Peter actually said, it was more like you can go to hell along with your money. I mean that. That's, if you look, at the, and there's a translation of the Bible that that is legitimately what he, what he used, a very strong fisherman type term. And he told this man that. He rebuked him right there because he saw the wickedness in his heart. Now, going back to why Philip needs authority in his life, remember, this guy was tagging along with Philip. He was, in a sense, maybe, he may have been hanging out with Philip, watching all of these things happen. He was the big celebrity that everybody loved. Like, oh my gosh, Simon is saved now. This is so great. And he's watching Philip do all of these things until the apostles come and expose what's really in his heart. And Peter called that out of him because he saw what was wicked in him. Peter openly rebuked him. That kind of sin is subtle, but it's desperately evil and vile. Okay, we don't do ministry so that we have influence. We do ministry so we can obey God and serve others. And it's possible that Philip never even saw this inside of Simon. Maybe he did. Maybe he never said anything, but Peter did. Peter came right in with the spiritual authority that God gave him and called this out, something that could have potentially ruined the Samaritan church. Peter called it out. That's why we need one another. That's why we need spiritual authority in our lives, because they see things we don't. Acts chapter 8, verse 24. Pray to the Lord for me, Simon exclaimed, that these terrible things you've said won't happen to me. After testifying and preaching the word of the Lord in Samaria, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem and they stopped in many Samaritan villages along the way preaching the good news. The next thing that we see about Philip is this. He broke down barriers. He broke down barriers. The Jewish people weren't going to the Samaritans. He broke that barrier down. The apostles who saw Jesus ministering to the Samaritans still did not go there until they saw Philip go there. And now Peter and John go there, and the Bible just said on their way back to Jerusalem, they stopped in all of the Samaritan village, villages along the way preaching the gospel. Why? Because Philip broke the barrier. Sometimes God needs a barrier breaker. 
Sometimes God needs someone who's going to say, nobody's going to reach them. Fine, I'll go reach them. Nobody's going to tell them about Jesus. Fine, I'll go help them. Nobody wants to touch this community. I'll move my family in there and reach that community. Because we're barrier breakers. God used Philip to tear these walls down. And God uses people who are courageous. And we think sometimes in culture that courage is saying something bold on Instagram. Boy, I really told them on Facebook, that's not courage. You're hiding behind your keyboard. Courage is obeying God. Courage is doing what God has asked you to do. Courage is speaking to that person you're scared to death to share anything with. That is courage. And I love the way Joyce Meyer says it. You may be afraid. When you go to preach the gospel, you may be afraid. But guess what? Do it afraid. Your knees may be shaking, but do it anyway. You may not have all the perfect words to say. Just don't tell them something dumb. Just invite them to church. Give them the QR code, whatever. But obey God's call for your life. And watch me. He will give you the courage to do what he's asking you to do. Sometimes you don't get the courage till you step out and do it. Sometimes you're, you're scared to death. Over, I can't do this. I can't do this. God, I'm going to obey you. And all of a sudden, the boldness of a lion comes on you. Because you stepped out and he gave you the grace to do the thing that he told you to do. Philip was a barrier breaker. And we live in a culture that tells us to fight for our rights. I get that. I understand that. But biblically, we're called to fight for other people. We're we're called to fight for those who can't fight for themselves. We're called to speak the gospel to those who are fighting with the blindness that the world has given them. Notice, I'm not talking about fighting against people. I'm talking about fighting for people, which leads me to the end of this chapter. And this is one of the most amazing parts in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 8, verse 26 says, Philip, as for Philip, excuse me, an angel of the Lord said to him, go down, go south down the road that runs from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out and he met the treasurer of Ethiopia. I'm almost done. A eunuch of great authority under Candace or Candace which wasn't her name. Candace was a role in the, in, for the Ethiopians. It was kind of like, it was what the Bible says next, the queen, the queen mother. In, in Ethiopian days and the monarchy back then, the king was thought of as like a sun god. So he was like, I'm too good to run the country, so I'll let my mama do it. That's pretty much what happened. That's what queen mothers did. That's what the Candaces did. They ran everything. So the eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship, and he was now returning, seated in his carriage. He was reading aloud from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, go out, go over, and walk along beside the carriage. Here's this great evangelist. God opens up Samaria. He's a barrier breaker. And then in the middle of the revival, God tells him to leave it. Because it wasn't about him being there and being the guy and and becoming the future apostle of the Samaritans. God said, leave and go down this dry, desert, hot, nasty road. And he doesn't know why, but he obeys God. And as he's walking down this road, he sees this carriage and he sees this Ethiopian man who, who was a eunuch with great influence. So there were multiple people around this guy and they're carrying this carriage and God says, go and speak to him. And for the sake of time, I won't, I won't read all of it to you, but I'll tell you this, and this is our seventh point. He partnered with 
the Holy Spirit. Philip partnered with the Holy Spirit as an evangelist. We're going to do the job or the work of an evangelist. We have to partner with the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit was setting this whole thing up with this eunuch. This eunuch had just left Jerusalem worshiping, not Jesus, but as a Jew. So he must have known about the, the Jewish religion, which that goes all the way back to Solomon, but I don't have time to go into that. But he went, he went and worshiped. And he had a Bible, which technically you weren't supposed to have. If you were a proselyte or someone who wasn't a Jew, you weren't supposed to have a Bible. But he was pretty wealthy, so I'm sure they probably made a concession. So he had this Bible, and he's going down the road, and he's reading this story in Isaiah. And he just so happens to be reading about the Messiah and what the Old Testament says about the Messiah. And I love Philip's response. God says, go alongside this chariot. Go alongside this man. And Philip, verse 30 says, Philip ran over and heard the man reading from the prophet Isaiah. Philip asked, do you understand what you are reading? The man replied, how can I? unless someone instructs me. And he urged Philip to come up into the carriage and sit with him. Philip leaves a revival, obeys God in doing something that makes absolutely no sense. Why am I going down this road and leaving what you just called me to do? And I see this chariot with this man from Ethiopia and now you tell me to go alongside of it, go walk to it. He doesn't just walk, he runs to it. Because at this point, he had confidence in the Holy Spirit. So he runs over, and that man just so happens to be reading about the Messiah. And he says, do you know what you're reading? And God says, I don't even know. How can I understand this? This is so complicated. The Jewish people didn't even understand this. And again, for the sake of time, I won't read it all, but Philip begins to preach the gospel to this man, and he explains what he's reading. And the man basically says, I want to be saved. I want to be born again. What stops me from being baptized right now? Philip says, nothing. So they stop the chariot. They pull over the side of the road. They find some water. And Philip baptizes that Ethiopian eunuch right there on the spot. Another barrier broken. Now what happens from there? That may not seem like a big story. But the gospel, that was the first time the gospel of Jesus Christ was brought to the the continent of Africa. From that one obedience to God, he partnered with the Holy Spirit and the gospel went to Africa in that moment because he obeyed God. Verse 39, when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away which is another way of saying that the Holy Spirit literally transported Philip. How many of y'all like that? When you're running late to work, God, just beam me up, Scotty. (laughs) Spirit of the Lord snatched Philip away. The eunuch never saw him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Meanwhile, Philip found himself farther north at the town of Azotus, and he began, and he preached the good news there and in every town along the way until he came to Caesarea. The next time that we see Philip, and I can't wait to get to this, but in Acts chapter 21, verse 8, the Spirit took him to Caesarea, and he stayed in Caesarea at that point. Again, going back to 
Verse 8, the next day when we went on to Samaria, this is Paul talking, and stayed at the home of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven men who had been chosen to distribute food. I love this. He had four unmarried daughters who had the gift of prophecy. Not only was he faithful to obedience to God, but because he modeled that, now his children were faithful to obedience to God. And his daughters were prophetesses speaking on God's behalf. Church, what am I saying? If I can end anything, I'll end it with this. You never know what's on the other side of your obedience. Some of you are called to be evangelists. Some of you are called to do the work of an evangelist. Some of you are called to serve and be faithful where you're at. Some of you are simply called to model this thing to your kids. Some of you are called to break barriers. Whatever it is that God has called you to do, you never know what's on the other side of your obedience. Let me pray for you. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for all of these amazing examples you give us in the scriptures that calls us into who we really are. And I pray that by the power of your spirit, light bulbs will go off all around this room people see what they're called to help us to be that expression to the world not just in the church help us not be so focused on using our gift in the church that we forget that you called us to use our gifts outside of this church and I pray you would take the gospel to our region you would take the gospel to St. Martinville to Brobridge to Coda Homes to Cypress Island to Delcom You take the gospel to Youngsville. You take the gospel to our region and we would see it preached in a powerful way and see revival break out in our communities. We love you. In Jesus' name. If you're here with your eyes closed and your heads bowed, if you would say, Pastor, I haven't responded to this gospel. And maybe you're like the eunuch, the Ethiopian eunuch going, I don't really understand this. Jesus loves you. But he wants you to be born again. That's the thing he wants, not just your church attendance. He wants you to be born again. And as a matter of fact, he said this in the book of John to a religious leader. You cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven, which is not just heaven one day. It's the kingdom on earth here right now. You can't enter that unless you are first born again. I want to lead you in a prayer. Surrender to Jesus today. If you say, I want to believe, I want to make Jesus the Lord of my life. And it's a simple process, as easy as ABC. A, you admit that you're a sinner. Honest with yourself about the truth of where you're at. B, you believe that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And C, you confess that he is now the Lord of your life. That he's the boss and calls the shots. If that's you, you with no one looking around on the count of three, I'm going to lead you in a prayer. But I just want you to lift up your hand so I know who I can acknowledge who I'm praying with. One, two, three. If that's you, lift it up. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Anyone else? Say, this is my moment. Thank you. You can put him down. Church, pray this prayer out loud with me. With everyone that's, that's raised their hand to be born again. And Jesus is going to meet you right where you're at as you make him Lord. The Spirit of God is going to fill your life right where you're at. Say this with me. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God and that on the cross you died for my sin 
for my guilt and for my shame. I believe you faced hell so I would not have to go. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, a purpose on earth, and a relationship with the Father. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it. And I make you the Lord of my life. And from this moment on, God is my Father. Jesus is my Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. And heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen.